listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture today is Ruth chapter 3. It can be found on pages 211 to 212 of your Pew Bibles. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you, so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the men until he has finished eating and drinking. When he has laid down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drank, drunk and was contented in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. The last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether you are you or rich, poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night and in the morning if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. 
Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the town. She came to her mother-in-law who said, how did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, he gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, well, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The word of God for the people of God. And thank you, Tiffany, for that reading. Do you need an arm? So this is going to be a fun one, guys. I'm, I'm very excited. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a good weird sermon, you know? Um, sometimes, sometimes here at this church we go deep. Um, other times we go for the heartstrings, and uh, sometimes we just get into some really weird, provocative stuff because the Bible goes there, and so we need to go there too. Uh, I do want to reiterate for anyone who maybe missed the earlier disclaimer or uh, if you're maybe streaming this online or listening to the sermon audio later, um, we're going to get into some adult territory today. Nothing too gratuitous, honestly, um, the kind of stuff you'd hear in like a middle school health class. Or, or maybe a playground. Um, so, so nothing too crazy. Um, but if there's little ears listening to this, you might want to have them leave the room for this one. With that out of the way, <clears throat> something you need to know about me is that I love a good sermon title. In fact, I spend way too much time thinking about sermon titles. Sometimes I have the title of a sermon figured out before I even write the sermon itself. And for this one, we actually have two titles, you guys. Um, it's sort of a Dr. Strangelove situation. Do you guys know Dr. Strangelove, 1964 Stanley Kubrick film? I figured that's a good year for, for many of us. Um, but Dr. Strangelove is a movie with two titles. It's called Dr. Strangelove, that's, that's the title most of us know it as, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Great movie, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Uh, that's my, my Christmas recommendation to you. Um, <clears throat> Similar to Dr. Strangelove, though, we've got two titles for this sermon. What happened on the threshing room floor? Or, Pastor Dan ruins the book of Ruth. <laughs> because <clears throat> we've, we've had a really good run through the book of Ruth these last few weeks, but um, this one might shift your perspective a little bit, and I think that's a good thing. Um, now, if you're a sick freak like me, um, you're going to love this. You, you will actually come away from this message with a new level of respect and appreciation for the book of Ruth. Um, but for the rest of you normies out there, uh, we're going to get into some scandalous stuff. This story is provocative, and it largely has to do with what transpires between Ruth and Boaz on the threshing room floor. This is the section in Ruth, if you're like reading through it, where it gets a little confusing for us. Because admittedly, we are separated from this book by centuries, millennia really, of cultural norms, context, language, you name it. There's this whole next of kin thing that comes in toward the end of the chapter, which is like super confusing and over our heads. We're not even going to get into that today. We're going to save that for next Sunday. Um, but the whole chapter is loaded 
with double entendres and innuendos, stuff that we completely miss reading it in English 3,000 years later. At the beginning of this chapter, Naomi is like, okay, Ruth, here's what you do. Change out of your, woman, your, your widow's clothes, these sad clothes of mourning that you're in, uh, and, and wash yourself. Take your one bath for the year, right? Because this is, this is a long time ago. There's no running water. Then you're going to put on some nice clothes, anoint yourself with oil, and go over to the threshing floor where Boaz and the other men are harvesting barley. After he's done working, he's going to be real tired. He's going to have some food. He's going to have a little something to drink. And once he is passed out on the threshing room floor, you go lay down next to him and uncover his feet. I think something got lost in the translation there, right? Like, like I'm, I'm confused reading this. Um, some context just to help us out. Farming was back-breaking labor back then, um, even worse than today because they didn't have all the machines and the modern tools that we have to make the job a little bit more manageable. And harvesting was the worst part of the process. These guys would work from morning to evening, thrashing the grain, cutting it up, beating it, separating out all the, the barley from the chaff. It was strenuous, painstaking, labor-intensive work. Because it was so difficult, it was customary back then for employers to provide alcohol to their workers after a long day on the threshing floor, a, a, little, a little reward to look forward to. It was also customary uh, at some farms for employers to provide women for their workers who offered a certain service, if you, if you can follow where we're going with that. People are nodding, which is good. Now, <clears throat> there's no indication of that last part anywhere in the text. And from what we learned about Boaz last week, he doesn't seem like that kind of guy. He's a good guy. But it's important to know that the threshing room floor had a certain connotation back in the day. It was a party zone. It was not a place where well-behaved women, quote-unquote, would have been found late at night. So that's a little context you need to know. Couple all that with the fact that Ruth is a Moabite. And we've talked about this uh, a lot the last couple weeks, how Israel and Moab were hated enemies back then. But when we actually look at some of the stories in the Bible about conflicts between Israel and Moab, there's almost always again, quote-unquote, immoral women involved. So Moabite women have this reputation in ancient Israelite society, and this text reminds us over and over that Ruth is a Moabite. So what is a Moabite woman doing on the threshing room floor in the middle of the night with Boaz? There's some language you need to know here, too. The key phrase is that she uncovers his feet. And the thing to know about the language here is that in ancient Hebrew, the word feet could also be a euphemism for genitals, your privates, the, the nether realm down there. That is your feet, right? The, the ancient Israelites used the word feet kind of like we use the word privates right? Like, like with my own kids, it's like we talk about privates. That's your area. If the book of Ruth had been written today and Ruth had uncovered Boaz's privates and someone reads that 3,000 years from now, they're going to be very confused. Like it'll be like, why are there low-ranking low soldiers here all of a sudden? Like it would be completely over their head. But in Hebrew, feet can mean genitals. It can also mean feet. 
but it can also mean genitals. I remember learning this in my Hebrew class back in seminary uh, when we were translating the book of Ruth, and it changes the vibe here a little bit. Uh, In fact, a lot of Old Testament stories read a little bit differently with this kind of linguistic information. And of course, I'm going to give you some examples. Um, Let's talk about the prophet Isaiah. How many of us are familiar with Isaiah, the prophet? Big big deal prophet in the Old Testament. Go to the next uh, slide, please, Micah. Perfect. In Isaiah 6, we read about the call of Isaiah. The prophet has this vision of the heavenly throne room where there are seraphim, these big, terrifying angels flying around God's throne. Each one of them has three pairs of wings. With one pair of wings, they fly. With another pair, they cover their face so that they don't look upon the glory of God. And with the third pair, they cover their feet. Not their feet, guys. They're, no, this, this is about modesty. Are we, are we following along? They're, they're going like this. That's what they're doing with the third pair of wings, okay? Are we tracking or are we just like completely like flabbergasted by this? We're okay. We're okay. It's gonna, it'll get better um, after it gets worse. <clears throat> Another example, though, comes from 1 Kings 22, and it's the story of King Rehoboam. Rehoboam, one of the lesser-known kings in Israel, he wasn't a great king, A civil war breaks out under his reign, and the leaders of the rebel tribes come to Rehoboam to try to make peace, to try to strike some kind of agreement. And they're like, we want to work with you, but we're scared because your father, when he was king, was very harsh to us. Does anyone know this story? Not many. Perfect. Because Rehoboam's response is, you thought my dad was bad, my little finger is thicker than my father's foot. <laughs> yeah, not feet. Um, <laughs> I, I, can, I can remember distinctly in high school reading this story for the first time and thinking, like, that's a weird thing to brag about. My finger is thicker than my dad's foot. Like, what? Yeah, not foot. This is one where it's really funny to see how different Bible translations have handled this one. Um, The Common English Bible, CEB, it reads, my baby finger is thicker than my father's waist, which is a little bit closer, like we're we're in the right area, right? But shout out to King James, the OG, which translates this line, my little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. You have to have the accent for King James. It's the only way it works. I think this is amazing, right? But it changes things. It shifts stuff a little bit. Now, I, I do want to clarify, though. I need to say, this idiom only works in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew thing. Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. The stories we have about Jesus and the disciples, those are in the New Testament. That's Greek very different language. So, in the New Testament, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, that's feet. (laughs) There's nothing funny happening in the Greek there, okay? I need to to clarify that because I know how your minds work. But in Hebrew, feet can mean genitals. So, to recap, Ruth cleans herself up puts on a nice dress, sneaks onto the threshing floor where Boaz is passed out after a long day of work, and she uncovers his feet. Probably not feet. We don't actually know 
what happened, what transpired exactly between Ruth and Boaz that the text doesn't tell us. Um, he's very excited about it, right? He's like, what, what a wonderful thing you've done for an old man like me. May you be blessed by the Lord. He, he also says, uh, who are you, which is never a good uh, way to lead in. Um, but he, we don't really know what transpired, and there's a reason for that. Propriety mattered back then. This was an honor-shame culture. You don't broadcast all the details about this stuff. This is also King David's grandma we're writing about, spoiler alert. And there's certain things you don't put in writing about the king's grandmother. Some scholars have theorized that this was some ancient form of like a, a marriage proposal, uncovering the feet, in which case feet really could be feet. And if that helps at all, if that kind of preserves your picture of the book of Ruth, more power to you, and that might even be right. But it's also possible, and I would argue likely, that something else went down here. Something transpired, and at the very least, Ruth is presenting herself to Boaz in a very vulnerable and a very sensual way. And the double entendres don't stop with feet, by the way. We've got to go a little deeper. After whatever happens, uh, happens in the morning, Boaz sneaks Ruth out of there uh, with some barley in her cloak. That's how our Bible translates it. More literally, though, the text says that he put his seed in her apron, at which point I think the narrator is just messing with us, right? Like, that's, that is, that's what's transpiring here. And if, and if you think I'm exaggerating, if you don't believe me, in the next chapter, these two have a baby, so I will leave that kind of to your imagination. But let's talk about how to apply this. Now that you know, reading between the lines, what's going on here, let's talk about what we do with a story like this in the middle of our Bibles. Because even though this isn't instructional, this, this is not a section of like, do this, don't do that, I really believe that there are lessons we can learn from every story in the Bible. Every story in the Bible has something to, take us, to teach us, takeaways that we can pull from it. So let's go through these lessons. <clears throat> and the first lesson, lesson one, as Christians, as, as people of the Bible, we should be the last people to ever judge someone who uses their body to survive in a way we might find scandalous. That's a mouthful, so I'm going to read it again. Christians should be the last people to judge someone who uses their body to survive in a way we might find scandalous. If you think about the sins that church people tend to dwell on, it's this stuff, right? The sex stuff. People who sleep with the wrong people. Uh, someone who lives with a person they're not married to. Sex workers, hookup culture, people who jump from one romantic relationship to another. These are the sins that church folks tend to dwell on all the time. And I've said it before in here, I will say it again. Sexual ethics matters. What we do with our bodies matters because sex puts us in an incredibly vulnerable position. Uh, it can open us to tremendous harm. God cares about sex because God cares about us and our well-being. That, that's all true. But as much as sex ethics matters, when we judge another person's sex life, more often than not, we are judging desperate people who are doing what they believe they have to do to survive. They're trying to get by. I think of friends of mine, family members, 
who jump from one bad relationship to the next one, right? Like it is so easy to pass judgment. What are you doing? This person doesn't care about you. They're just like the last one. Why do you keep making all these bad decisions? But in almost all these cases, these are desperate people doing their best to survive. I had a student when I taught at Fuller Seminary who was a pastor at Triple X Church in Las Vegas. Triple X Church is a real church in Vegas that specializes in outreach to sex workers and people in the porn industry. Um, And this student of mine told me that every single person she knew in those industries had some sort of terrible trauma in their background. Every single one. Because no little kid grows up wanting to work in those industries. That doesn't happen. These people don't need our judgment or our condemnation. They need our love and our support. What if instead of all the judgmental, hypocritical stuff, what if Christians were known for being loving, kind, and for advocating for the rights of sex workers? Making sure they're protected, making sure they're respected. That would be amazing. It would be a very different church, and it would be incredibly honoring to our spiritual ancestor, Ruth. Ruth was not a sex worker. Although as a Moabite, that's about where she ranked in Israelite society. But Ruth is a desperate woman who does what she needs to to survive. She has nothing. She has no wealth, no income, no family, no prospects. So she uses the one resource she has, her body, in a desperate effort to live. Who are we to judge her for that? We can't. And we should never judge anyone who is in that situation. That's our first lesson. Lesson two, the heroes of our faith are a mess. God used them, and God can use us too. If you actually try reading the Bible, uh, it doesn't take long to realize that these people are a mess. I'd say by like page three, it's pretty clear that these people are a mess. Um, Abraham is a mess. Moses was a mess. David, total mess. Uh, St. Peter, the rock on which Jesus built his church, was a mess. Peter is a coward and a liar who denies Jesus three times, and Jesus still uses him. It doesn't stop Jesus from doing something amazing through Peter. Ruth is a bit of a mess. Boaz, messy. That didn't stop God from using them in an amazing way. These are the heroes of our faith, right? The spiritual giants, we grow up looking up to these people. We put them on these pedestals and imagine that these heroes of the Bible were perfect people, people that we could never live up to. I could never be a Boaz. I could never be like Ruth. But Boaz and Ruth were a mess, just like us. And they're remembered as spiritual giants because God used them in amazing ways. We don't get Jesus if Ruth doesn't uncover Boaz's feet on the threshing room floor. I want you to realize that because these are also Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, too. God can use you. God can do amazing 
stuff through you. I know God is doing amazing stuff through you. You don't have to be perfect. You can be a mess. Our faith is not about perfection. It's about holiness, and holy does not mean perfect. Holy means set apart. It means that you are allowing God to work in you, to use you, and to transform you as you draw closer to God. That's what it is to be holy. You can be a mess. The heroes of our faith are a mess, just like us. God used them, and God can use us too. Lesson three, and this is the last one I want to tease out today. It's going to be a fun sermon talk back, by the way. Uh, Lesson three. God can use anything to advance God's work in the world, and I want to emphasize the word anything. What Ruth does in this chapter is bold. Um, It's gutsy, but it's also a humongous risk. Um, This is not a particularly smart move. It's not a situation I would want to see anybody in who I care about. Ruth puts herself in an incredibly unsafe position. We learned last week, Boaz is a righteous man, a holy man, a respected man, a man with tremendous power, and Ruth puts herself in an incredibly compromised position. She could be rejected, exploited, abused. Boaz could have her stoned, potentially. If someone else sees this Moabite woman on the threshing room floor, they could expose her to all sorts of terrible stuff. This is not a good situation, but by God's grace, Ruth survives. That's a miracle. God uses this unsafe situation to advance God's work in the world. That's another miracle because it reminds us that God can use anything. This reminds me of that verse from Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love God. How many of us have heard this one? Yeah. I can't stand this verse personally because it's like the most cliche, bumper stickery thing. But often this is a verse that people will use out of context and kind of twist to dismiss like really bad stuff. Like it's not, it's not so bad, right? God can use all things for good. But that's not what this verse is about. This is not saying that all things are good. It's saying God can use all things for good. That's a big difference. Some stuff is bad. Some situations are downright terrible. But the amazing thing is, the thing we can draw hope from is that God can use anything to bring about good. God can redeem all of it. The next time you're in a bad situation whether you're facing tragedy or sickness, chaos, disappointment, look for the grace in that situation. No matter how bad it is, and it can get really, really bad, look for where God is at work in the mess. Where is God showing up? How am I growing, changing, being challenged through this? What am I learning? Where do I see God at work in the midst of all this chaos around me? That is grace. God used the situation of a desperate woman on the threshing floor to bring about one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, King David. 
And God uses that family, God uses David's line in all their brokenness, all their messiness, fingers of various widths. God uses all of that to bring Jesus into the world to save us. That's the grace of this story. That's what I hope you remember this Advent. That is what's happening on the threshing room floor. Let's pray. God, we invite you into our messiness. We invite you to redeem the darkest parts of our stories, the stuff that we would not want written down for all to see. Help us to draw inspiration from these flawed but holy and incredibly human uh, figures in our Bibles. And give us pause, Lord, before we pass judgment on anyone in these situations. We ask for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.